Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. This week saw all three branches of government embroiled in positioning and strategic maneuvering over battleground issues for the 2024 election, which is just around the corner, the Iowa caucuses being less than a month away. The I-word, impeachment, made yet another return to Congress when, despite having meager, if not zero, evidence, every House Republican voted to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The I-word may have lost its sting in recent years, but the inquiry seemed to mark a new degradation of the term, since the proponents proved unable to offer any predicate conduct that might legitimate an impeachment of the president, raising the question, what do they hope to accomplish? In the wake of a 56-page indictment against him alleging multiple tax crimes, Hunter Biden and his lawyer came out swinging as the younger Biden lashed out at Republicans during brief remarks standing outside the Capitol. Having been served with a congressional subpoena to appear privately for a deposition, Hunter insisted he would testify only in public for fear that the GOP might twist his words. In a stark reminder of the Supreme Court's authority not solely to adjudicate cases, but also to select which cases it will address, the court got involved in two matters this week, both holding potentially pivotal implications for the upcoming 2024 election. First, Jack Smith moved the court for a petition before judgment, seeking consideration of Trump's claim of immunity before it had progressed through the lower courts, an uncommon request that fits the situation like a glove. Second, the court took up a case challenging the distribution regulations surrounding the abortion drug Mifepristone, setting up a high-stakes fight that could sharply curtail access to the medication, even in states where abortion remains legal. To help us understand the high stakes and the strategies of the combatants, we welcome three of the most respected analysts of the political landscape in the country. And they are... Al Franken is the host of the Al Franken podcast, which for four and a half years has been one of the most entertaining and insightful podcasts out there for a change. He served as a United States Senator, of course, from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018, and he was one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live, where he worked for 15 seasons and won Five Emmys for writing and producing, no matter what Wikipedia says, right? Five is correct? You can't correct Wikipedia. He recently bet Lindsey Graham $20 that Biden would beat Trump in 2024. Welcome back to Talking Fed, Senator mm -hmm. Al Franken. Thank you. It's great to be back. Alexi McCammond, she's the opinion editor now for the Washington Post and an MSNBC contributor. Before joining the Post, she was a political journalist for Axios, a freelance journalist for Cosmopolitan, and a news editor for the online magazine Bustle. In 2020, she was named to Forbes' ultra-prestigious 30 Under 30 list. Thank you for returning, Alexi McCammon. Thanks, Harry. Good to see you. Likewise. And Bob Shrum a renowned Democratic strategist. He currently serves as the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC. 
The Atlantic Monthly has described him as the most sought-after consultant in the Democratic Party. Bob notably served as a speechwriter for Senators George McGovern, Edward Kennedy in their presidential campaigns, but has consulted for countless others and up to the present. Thanks very much for joining us, Bob Trump. Glad to be here. And I probably would have to be uh, in some magazine as uh, 80 people over 80. (laughs) Exactly. There's going to be a lot of fighting for that distinction. All right. Let's begin with the I-word impeachment, which resurfaced in Congress this week. Actually, it's a double I. The House Republicans have greenlighted an official inquiry into an impeachment, or maybe a triple I, an investigation into an inquiry into an impeachment. In any event, it poses the question, is there anything there? Is there any scintilla of evidence of something impeachable on the part of President Joe Biden? I don't think so. You know, they keep citing the testimony of this business partner of Hunter Biden's, Devin Archer, who actually said, Joe Biden never had anything to do with our business. We never discussed business with him. He would phone his son and sometimes we'd listen in, but they would just exchange pleasantries. He was just checking in on Hunter. And this is when he's vice president, right? Yeah. I think it's a very dangerous uh, road the Republicans are thinking of going down. In 1998, when they were headed toward impeaching Bill Clinton, we made a series of ads. The president called me and said, I really want to fight this stuff. And we made a series of ads in the last two or three weeks that said, impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. Or what about Social Security? What about Medicare? What about investing in education? Why are they wasting our time? And 1998 proved to be a disastrous midterm election for the Republicans and actually forced Newt Gingrich out of the speakership. Maybe that we'll get rid of Speaker Johnson this way. That was sort of also, what about peace and prosperity don't you like? Yeah. I mean, he, that was a, a pretty good time in America. In fact, that's what Gore probably should have run on. <laughs> Just reliving that lost election. <laughs> just a historical aside there. Yeah, but, yeah. just uh, make feel everyone feel sad for a moment. Actually, he did run on the prosperity part of this. It was actually quite relevant. The difficulty was that Bill Clinton had a very high job approval rating and a very low personal approval rating. And every focus group we went into, they were kind of relieved at the idea that he was not going to be president anymore. So you couldn't run for a third Clinton term. You had to go out there and run on things like prescription drug coverage, which we finally have achieved. And of course, if it hadn't been for the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County, Florida would have Uh, even have been uh, close. Teresa Lepore. Alexi, I know you were eight at the time, so you forgive this the old men growling, but you had a thought about the current day. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's so misguided. I think it's just ridiculous that they're investigating something they've already investigated and still have found no evidence, and they're running out of ways to say that. And it's remarkable that they're trying to do this simply to help Trump with his campaign to do his bidding, Trump's putting on Truth Social that that's what it's all about, that it's about his retribution. 
And it's just remarkable because I, I wonder if these folks even care about keeping the House next year. They have such a slim majority and they're not even thinking about what they were elected to do. They're literally thinking about Donald Trump's campaign only. Do you think the idea there is to say everyone's dirty, so don't worry so much about Trump? Or is it the idea to actually change the subject and dirty up Biden? It's both of those, right? I think if with some people, with MAGA people, it's both of those. And with, I think your garden variety, on the fence, undecided person will look at this. And unless the fishing expedition comes up with some fish, they're going to look at this and say, this is ridiculous. And there were a number of Republican House members who voted for this who are really in tough districts and districts where Biden won. And I don't see how they hold on to the House unless there's some weird wave election, because this House has disgraced itself over and over again. And part of it is subpoenaing Hunter Biden. And Jim Jordan is a guy who didn't answer a subpoena himself. <laughs> so it's all ugly and it's all it's sad. Can I follow up on Bob's point, though, with one contrast, arguably, with 1998, which is these are very prosperous times. And by normal benchmarks, Biden's performed superbly, I think you could say, on the economy. But it's clear that somehow he hasn't made that sale. And the opinion of the American people is that he hasn't done much, or at least they're okay, but the economy is tanking. Trump would do better. So it, it appears that Biden is playing from the same playbook that you mentioned, Bob. Uh, he came out and said, instead of addressing pressing and critical tasks, they opt to squander time, etc. But he's more vulnerable on the prosperity for kind of puzzling reasons, but he, he doesn't have the same tailwind as Clinton had in 1998 on the economy, no? Clinton didn't have the 9% inflation, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, whatever it is. And boy, that stings. And because of that inflation, even though it's down to 3.1% or something like that now, even though it's that, Prices are higher because it was 9% in the middle of last year. But I will say that it seems like everybody predicted a recession in this year and far from it. And employment is high. In 1994, the economy was actually getting a lot better and people didn't realize it. There's a lag time between the reality and the perception. And there are a couple of data points that I think may tell us where this is headed. Uh, one, the New York Times has a big story today about the prices of some goods, Al, actually coming down, some major consumer goods, which is encouraging people to go out and spend money and shop. Secondly, in 2022, people actually suffered a loss in the media. People had the median income, that which is the best data point you can get, because if you use the average income, you're factoring in the wealthiest people in the country. But at, at the median income level, people actually suffered a loss in their real incomes. In 2023, they actually gained in terms of their real incomes. Their real incomes actually went up faster than inflation did. And I think 
It's going to take three or four months, although there's some straws in the wind. The University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey all had numbers that went up by pretty substantial margins in the last month. And people were a little surprised and why did that happen? Well, because I think the effects of all this are beginning to be felt in real people's lives. Gas is what, $2.78 a gallon in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's wow. not in California, but yeah, you know. well, we California has a special problem, as we know. Yeah. And some special virtues. Alexi, I wonder if I can close this out with you and sort of following up on the senator's point about the potential problems for the right now. What is it? Two or three person House majority. So you're Johnson. How big a roll of the dice is this for him? Is he the next, you know, spinal tap drummer? Can I use that reference? But (laughs) is it all on the line for him now? And if so, what looks like a win? What looks like a loss for him and the party in the House, would you say? I mean, I think the one thing we forget to mention with Republicans, especially in the House, is that they're doing a lot of this stuff because what else would they be doing? What are they fighting for? What type of vision do they have for the future beyond, oh my God, Joe Biden's America is terrible and scary, and that's why you need to elect us. It's remarkable. So I think Speaker Johnson, I mean, the way that he got into the role he's in now, I wouldn't imagine he's there for the long term. Again, I think what's interesting is Kevin McCarthy obviously helped Republicans in California win competitive congressional races. George Santos in New York, who knows how that'll change things, but the recent map redrawing obviously helps Democrats in those races. And those two states alone can make a huge difference for the majority. And without Kevin McCarthy's full help and Speaker Johnson in charge of an impeachment inquiry, which will likely become an impeachment vote, He's putting his members in really tough positions, again, without fully, I think, thinking about the future implications for the party, for their power, for their agenda. So you think it's likely this ripens into an impeachment vote? The base is going to demand it, but I don't know how many of those, and we just talked about New York, I don't know how many of those members of Congress from New York in what are pro-Biden districts now and will probably be more pro-Biden after the map is redrawn, I don't know that they're going to enthusiastically walk the plank. And they don't have much margin there. If they're going to lose three or four votes, that's it. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar addresses the question, What is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, also known as HIPAA? To explain and answer this question, we welcome Jennifer Morrison. Jennifer Morrison is an actress, director, and producer, most recently known as Cassidy Sharp on NBC's This Is Us. You also may remember her as Allison Cameron in the medical drama series House and as Emma Swan in the ABC adventure fantasy series, Once Upon a Time. Jennifer's director's credits include HBO's Euphoria and the 2017 comedy drama film, Sundogs. I give you Jennifer Morrison on HIPAA. Maintaining patient confidence has been a part of healthcare since at least the time of Hippocrates. 
Indeed, the Hippocratic Oath includes a promise to keep patient information under wraps. In 1996, Bill Clinton signed into law the Health Insurance Probability and Accountability Act, also known as HIPAA. HIPAA codifies robust patient confidentiality protections while allowing the sharing of health information necessary to high-quality care. HIPAA applies to all medical providers, healthcare facility staff, insurance companies, electronic medical record companies, and other covered entities. Primarily, HIPAA protects personal health information, or PHI, as well as PII, which stands for Personally Identifying Information, such as name, address, social security number. The law required the creation of national standards to protect PHI and PII from being disclosed without patient consent or knowledge. It also imposes civil and criminal penalties for violation. Detailed HIPAA standards and requirements appear in regulations issued by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Chief among the various implementing and clarifying regulations are the so-called Privacy Rule and Security Rule. The Privacy Rule, published in 2000, sets out how covered entities may use and disclose protected health information. The Security Rule, published in 2003, provides administrative, physical, and technical safeguards required to protect patient information. There are several exceptions to HIPAA's strong privacy and confidentiality protections. First, routine disclosures related to treatment, payment, and healthcare operations are permitted so as not to hinder patient care. Non-routine disclosures are also contemplated. These include, for example, sharing of information with law enforcement and in judicial and administrative proceedings, as well as disclosures without patient authorization in certain medical emergencies, cases of child or elderly abuse, and similar extenuating circumstances. Violating HIPAA can have serious and headline-generating consequences. In 2008, UCLA Medical Center fired 13 employees and suspended six physicians after they accessed Britney Spears' medical records without a valid purpose. Word to the wise, patient confidentiality is no joke. For Talking Feds, I'm Jennifer Morrison. Thank you so much to Jennifer Morrison for explaining HIPAA. Jennifer's upcoming directing project is in the second season of the true crime series, Dr. Death, for which she directed and executive produced the first four episodes. All eight episodes of Dr. Death season two will be available on Peacock on Thursday, December 21st. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we start with two of our absolute favorite things, dessert and wine, and combine them into one delicious topic, dessert wines. What are they exactly and how are they made? Grab a fork and a glass, and let's dig into this sweet subject matter. Dessert wines are just as you'd hope they'd be, sweet wines that are typically served after a meal. Sometimes they're served with a dessert, and sometimes they're served as dessert. And then there are those times in between. The smoothness and lack of acidity make for a pleasant and easygoing taste that pairs perfectly with relaxation. I reach for dessert wines when I'm craving something sweet to enjoy while unwinding in the evening or after a big meal. To make a sweet dessert wine, the fermentation process is halted just prior to the yeast converting all the sugar to alcohol. Interrupting the fermentation ensures that there is sugar remaining in the wine, which gives us that sweetness we crave. But the amount of sweetness varies from wine to wine, and there's no shortage of options. Just pop into Total Wine & More, and you'll see many, many varieties, from ports to ice wines to Sautern and to Hungarian Tokai. Dessert wines come in both still and sparkling, too. They're also made from both red and white grapes. 
and they can be served chilled in a small glass or room temperature, proving that really, when it comes to dessert wines, anything goes. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe a little of both? Stop into your local Total Wine to check out our large selection of dessert wines, and feel free to chat with a helpful guide for a recommendation. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's move for a few minutes back where actually you started, Bob, which is the the whole idea here is to somehow try to connect it to Hunter Biden. So they were buoyed, in a sense, by the aggressive 56-page indictment that came down against uh, him here in California. He is sort of a wild card here, yeah, because, you know, after lying low for a few years, he and his lawyer, Abby Lowell, have come out swinging and presumably they'll stay that way. Does that complicate or undermine the White House strategy as you see it, or does it complement it? First, I think that people are going to decide whether to vote for Joe Biden. They're not voting for or against Hunter Biden. Secondly, I think there's a lot of sympathy that folks feel for what Joe Biden went through with his family and what he's gone through in terms of trying to get Hunter on the right track. Lots of people know someone in their family or a friend who's had some of these kinds of problems. Number three, and I agree with Abby Lowell on this, if his last name wasn't Biden, this 56-page indictment wouldn't have happened. I mean, you're the expert on this, Harry. I'm on record with exactly your position. It's an outrage. If somebody doesn't pay their taxes and then they pay them and they get straight with the government, they don't get indicted. And the gun charge is hardly ever prosecuted at all. So I think that either out of his own inclination, the special counsel, or because he's under pressure, felt he had to move forward or he wanted to move forward. I would be very surprised if this indictment results in in a conviction. Well, let me just respond to that as a prosecutor, which is to say a lot of it stinks. It's an abuse I think a prosecutorial discretion, he'll try to make a selective prosecution claim. But once you're over that line of USV, it's a different game. And most of those things can't really come into a jury. So I agree completely with what you said about the genesis of it. The odds are always against the the defendant in cases like this. He said in the speech that he's proud of Brisma. And that, I thought, was a note that I, he probably didn't have to say. He was being on the board of Burisma. I felt terrible for him <laughs> during much of it, but I also felt some vulnerability because we don't know. He's obviously ir- was irresponsible, and very often that's illegal. So, but And I don't know what the normal course is in terms of indicting someone with these crimes i do it's not that it's not what they've done well that's too bad so they've been overly aggressive with him and i think that's a shame and it's unfair but that's the game now i guess let me ask you said 80 over 80 in jest bob but you guys know biden some he's by all accounts a very concerned father he's you know his son may be looking at prison which he knows he wouldn't have been indicted but for the last name How big an emotional toll does it take in the middle of an election campaign? And you guys are intimately familiar with campaigns as well. Does it take him off his game, do you think? Or can any pro just separate out even such severe news as this? I think it makes him more determined 
not inclined to walk away from this, not inclined to let people use his son to do this to him. And by the way, I'm sure his son and his family don't want him to walk away from this either. Such a good question, because I think Hunter Biden has been talking a lot about this being very vulnerable. He did this podcast with the artist Moby recently, and it was, I mean, I listened to the whole thing and there's something to be said, especially about men talking about their feelings, talking about, he said he gets on an hourly basis, texts from journalists, reporters being like, we're writing this about you, we're writing this about you. And he's very aware of how that could affect President Biden's mental health. He ties it to Bo's death and obviously how that makes their relationship even more important to him. It's so opposite from the, you know, nasty, crack-using, gun-owning caricature that Republicans have made of him. I thought it was a really remarkable podcast that everyone should listen to. Bob's uh, insight that how does this affect Joe Biden is a big one because you could say, was this a good strategic? Yes or no? Are people going to like this, hate this? If it lifts Biden's ire and fighting spirit, that's good, right? As opposed to sitting back and feeling helpless and taking punches. So I hadn't thought of that till Bob said that. That's why he's the most sought after consultant yeah. in the Democrats <laughs> Atlantic said. That was a long time ago too, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's just close out here. Do voters care about Hunter Biden? Is there any stickiness to this idea of the Biden crime family, et cetera? Or will nobody give a fig about it? What's your thoughts about the political purchase? It sticks with the MAGA base. The MAGA base likes it. They like the Biden crime family. I don't think it sticks with the voters who ultimately are going to decide this election. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of Joe Biden profiting in any way from any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. And by the way, there's also a technical question, Harry, which you might be a better expert on. I always get his name wrong. Senator from Republican conservative senator from Oklahoma said today that he's very dubious about this whole thing because under the Constitution, you have to impeach somebody for something they did while they were president, not something they did at some other time. So he said, he, he doesn't see the evidence yet, but even if it were there, what would it add up to? Now, if the evidence were there, it would hurt Biden badly if it looked like he had profited from this. But we know, for example, that he went over to Ukraine with specific instructions from President Obama and the agreement of all the other countries in, in NATO that the chief prosecutor was corrupt and had to be fired. He wasn't doing it to help Burisma. Also, you look at the Trump kids. How many trademarks did she get from China? $2 billion in investment from Saudi Arabia. I worry that people already didn't want a Biden-Trump rematch. People were sick of Trump in large part because of the baggage and the chaos and the confusion. I worry that people will be like, I didn't want them in the first place. Biden seems as sketchy as Trump. They both are not my vibe. I'm just going to stay home. And I think that's also concerning when you look at the polling and see this clear interest in third party candidates or alternative folks, even if they don't end up voting for these people. When you're giving them choices, they're like, great, I'd rather have someone else. And it's easy for us to dissect the details of 
who was responsible for what, what we know, what we don't know. I think a lot of people will hear this. Trump will use it over and over again at his rallies online to really muddy the waters. And I think that the folks who are low information voters or watching Fox News and CNN because they want to get both perspectives, I think people will be like, "Ugh, it's such a drag. Everybody's got this baggage. Everybody's corrupt. Washington blows. Can I enter a mild dissent, Harry, with respect to the polls? I think we're paying way too much attention to the polls right now. In the fall of 1983, there was a poll. I don't know if it was a Gallup poll or another poll. 62% of people did not want Ronald Reagan to run for re-election. A year later, he got 60% of the vote. One of my biggest complaints about the media right now is there's so much horse race coverage, so many polls, so many of them are sketchy in my view. We ought to not be paying so much attention to them. But I think they get eyeballs and clicks. And the result of that is that news enterprises, which are after all a business, give people what they want. I think it's hard to deny the patterns we've seen in polling that are backed up by focus groups and anything you see online. I know people like to roll their eyes about TikTok, but I know you all have seen the same Pew data and otherwise that I have that so many more people across the board get news on TikTok. I mean, people are unhappy. It's more than polls. I do think a lot of people love to use polls as a news peg, obviously, but there's a clear pattern of people being totally dissatisfied with their likely choices. And again, for better or for worse, they're singularly focused, it seems, on Biden's age, which is obviously something he cannot change. And it's unfortunate that people, although Trump is nearly the same age as Biden, see Trump as some physically fit guy. I think there's a way in which that sort of reinforces Bob's point. We'll be figuring this out by political scientists over the coming years. But I think polls are maybe a little different now just because the electorate is so sour. And so whatever you serve up to them, they're against it. So it depends whether Biden is the focus. I think something really is flawed in a way we haven't come to grips with. I also think that economic news, we've had some this past week, very yeah. good economic news. And this was supposed to be a recession this year. That's all the common wisdom was that. Instead, 5% growth in the third quarter. Uh, now I think 35 1% unemployment or something like that. And it looks like a soft landing. It looks like the Fed is actually going to start bringing down interest rates. One of the things that when you get bad numbers from is people are still remembering 9% inflation. You don't forget that. You just don't. And that 9% brought prices up higher than they were over here. So even if you have just 3% here, they're higher than you remember them, a year, you know, two years ago, a year ago. All right, more to come on this. I just want to answer that hanging chat, if I could put it that way, Bob, of your, your legal question for what it's worth in case people were curious. I think, you know, it seems like a pretty good argument. This is when he was vice president. But I think what we've learned over the last few years is the impeachment remedy and rules and regulations are kind of whatever the Senate and House can get away with and the court won't be intervening. So there could be some senators or even members of the House who proffer that as a reason. 
but it's whether it appeals to them rather than, you know, men and women in robes, I think. But speaking of men and women in robes, boy, I couldn't have written a better segue, and I didn't write it, but in a vivid reminder of the Supreme Court's power, not simply to decide cases, but to decide which cases it will decide, a huge part of the court's authority that people often overlook. But the court became involved in two cases this week that have potential reverberations in the 2024 election. I'd like to talk about both of them, the uh, abortion case, but first the immunity case involving the January 6th prosecution. So Jack Smith moved the Supreme Court to get involved early, sort of a petition before judgment, and I'll just put on my ex-Supreme Court clerk uh, hat and tell you that a very rare maneuver, but I thought totally fitting here. It's the sort of thing that after you you uh, saw it, it was like, oh, wow, what a great move. But let's talk about in terms of the political landscape. So under the timeline, he's got he did two things. He said, take up this question and also expedite it. And so far, they're expediting, right? Given Trump, who could otherwise have had 30, 60 days, nine days, Wednesday, he needs to respond to the petition for cert. So under the timeline that Smith has asked for, the court could hear arguments and issue a ruling, if you think of U.S. v. Nixon as the big precedent, in, say, 60 days. How would that change the political landscape in the lead up to 2024? Let me make one more nerdy legal point, which is because Chutkin a few days ago stayed not just the trial, but the litigation, the discovery, this pause that we're now having is sort of one-to-one with delay in the in the trial. It's sort of a certain thing, I think. They won't start the whole clock again until the, the issue's been decided. So right now, we're looking at a 60-day delay at best, I think. Let me ask you the legal basis for him asking immunity, because is it that something he did as president, he can't be tried for. That was his main submission. And his fallback submission is going to be, as long as I was sort of acting as a president within the outer perimeter. But that's going to be a loser on the facts, I think, because we already have strong indication that's not what he was doing. It was a campaign rally besides which he was looking to overthrow the Constitution. The real issue, though, is how much time it takes to settle this all out and what that does to the prospects for a trial in 2024, especially because the other cases are looking less and less likely. Well, Harry, that's exactly the point. The whole modus operandi, the whole strategy of the Trump lawyers and Trump himself, and I'm not sure, by the way, that the lawyers tell him what to do or that he tells them what to do, but the whole strategy here is delay, 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 delay try to win the election, pardon yourself or turn the power over to the vice president for a day and he can pardon Trump and he's at least out of all the federal charges and then argue that states can't prosecute a sitting president. That's the whole strategy. But for me, I mean, you talked about a couple of these arguments being losers. The general immunity argument to me is a complete loser. I mean, if you say presidents can't be held responsible, so that means Richard Nixon could order the bombing of the, of the Brookings Institution and not be held accountable for it. I don't think anybody's made this as a serious argument before. And finally, Alexei's going to 
rightly snap back at me about polling, but the polling does show that if he gets convicted of any of these things, his chances of winning an election are very, very small. It's really a dramatic, that one result in polling, it's true. If if the court does what you say, hears it, issues a, a ruling in 30 days, 60 days, then I think you push the trial off in Washington to April or May. I don't think that's good for Trump, actually. I mean, he's, he, what he wants is he wants the trial pushed off to November or December. I just want to say for the record, I was not defending polling, but the media <laughs> and only a segment of the media. And by segment, I mean myself and the way I think about it. But, but I totally hear you. And I think, I mean, everyone was just like totally misreading the polls and discounting them ahead of 2022. And everyone was so wrong then that it's like remarkable. We just turn around and cover them the same way now. Let's say the Supreme Court holds against him on immunity, which I I actually think is fairly plausible. You know, he's so focused on winning. So far, it seems as if the indictments haven't really affected at least his base and maybe a little bit of erosion in the middle. What impact would it have of a headline of, you know, Supreme Court rejects Trump theory? Is that a seismic political event as you see it? Again, I'm not a political scientist and I don't have all the data in front of me, but I love watching focus groups and seeing what people are talking about and how they're making sense of these things. And I just think they show time and again that it's not registering with people in the same way that we all understand it to be this monumental event. I think even the idea that democracy is at stake again is really lost on people because they're like, what are you talking about? You said that last time and we survived Trump so we can do it again. It's, it just really feels like a disconnect between what we all know is a big deal and what other people can sort of shrug off. When if you all shrug it off and reelect Trump, <laughs> who knows what is going to happen the second time he's in office? Can I make a, a just a point about immunity? So I want to quote Mitch McConnell in the speech where he said, I'm not voting for a conviction. He said, we have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation and former presidents are not immune from being held accountable by either one. Happen to have Mitch McConnell right here, as they say, another MM. Thanks, Mitch. But I mean, the point is, is that, wait a minute, that was part of your argument for not voting to convict. It was part of it. That was pretty uh, convincing that no, he can be tried after after here. I just think that should be part of the case. By the way, every time I hear that, and never as good as when you say it, it's such a poignant moment to me. It's one of three or four moments where really we could have gone the other way, you know, if McConnell had just had the fortitude. Let's move to another very important shadow cast by the Supreme Court on the election which is they've agreed to hear and will decide by June the Mifepristone case involving the most, by far, common form of pregnancy termination in the, in the country. So the case is actually about, here putting this my Supreme Court nerd hat on again, administrative law and standing. But is that too fine a distinction for voters? If the court holds that the FDA approval was faulty, say, is that just automatically another political firestorm in the way that Dobbs was? It's a disaster for the Republicans. It's the classic case 
uh, this will be the second time on this issue that the dog caught the car. And if you look at 2022, the reproductive rights issue, along with dangers to democracy, were big driving factors in us not having a red tsunami and at best a red trickle in the house. Throw on top of that the fact that Donald Trump has reopened the idea of repealing Obamacare, which is very, very popular in the country. And you've got you've got a threesome here. My guess is that, and you're the expert here, but my guess is that Roberts was not want to will not want to go down this road. And that he probably will be able to persuade a Kavanaugh or an Amy Coney Barrett not to go down this road because he worries about the court's legitimacy. Right now, the sense people have of the court, the confidence in the court is very, very low. But if, in the political terms, it's absolute catastrophe if they say the FDA shouldn't have authorized this drug or if they say you can't mail it. You know, it's a catastrophe for Republicans. It's really a catastrophe for women. Yep. That would be the tragedy here. Uh, as you said, more than half of abortions are used mifepristone. So politically, yes, it works for Democrats. But, you know, we had that Kate Cox. Oh, oh my God. What a horror show, right? If that isn't an example of when you can terminate a pregnancy, then there's no example. She was carrying a fetus that wouldn't be able to survive, wouldn't necessarily even make it to birth, but after birth wouldn't make it, could die almost the next day. If you believe her doctor, as opposed to Ken Paxson, that is. <laughs> yeah, well, Dr. Paxson, isn't he? Does he play one on TV? I don't even know. No, he's actually in Dite Paxton. That's true. There you go. Yeah. By the way, abortion now is going to be a huge issue next year, no matter what the court does with this case. Yeah. What's the state of play there with the court told us this is going to settle things. And instead, you're seeing states really pushing the envelope. So it, is it inevitable that A, it'll be an issue and B, it'll play to Democrats' favor? Well, yes. I think, A, it's inevitable it's going to be an issue. And we're going to have more things like the Cox situation in Texas that will raise this up. Women are really angry about this. And by the way, so are a lot of men. It's not very popular to take away rights from people. Once you had a right, and that right has existed for 50 years, and you suddenly rip it away, people don't like it. And as we saw in 2022, they come out and vote, and they're heard. And look at what happened in that Ohio referendum where turnout in that special election in 2023 was just a scintilla short of the turnout in 2022. Right. That almost never happens. And the Republicans had planned that election for August in the middle of the summer, hoping that they'd get a low turnout electorate that was skewed older. And instead, they got a high turnout electorate that was skewed younger. Well, I don't have Mitch McConnell with me, but there is a woman on the panel. Could we ask Alexi for your your thoughts here? Another example is the Kentucky governor's race. Obviously, mm -hmm. Governor Bashir had that ad with the horrific story of the young woman 
who was raped by her stepfather. And, you know, these stories are not going away. The news cycle will not change. It will get harder and harder to ignore these things when they're so visceral. They touch men, as Bob was saying, just as much as women. It's a family's issue. It's an economic issue. And people really don't like when the government seems to be overreaching in any capacity, but let alone when it comes to your own body, the decision whether to have kids and how often it is a clear example of a reality in which Republicans want women to be living in a totally different time period than they are and than we currently should be. You know who else it touches I've come to realize recently? Parents. I have an 18-year-old daughter and, you know, she's going to college in a blue state, but if it were red, I'd be petrified. Let me ask, though, the converse of this, because I actually, last time with Supreme Court nerd hat on. It's a beautiful hat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's got double stripes on either side. Um, I think they're going to reverse. Let's say they find that the Fifth Circuit is wrong and that total nutcase, Kaczmarek, district court is wrong. And basically the FDA did act lawfully. Does that actually give a boost to Trump on the theory of, oh, that Supreme Court, they're not so bad after all. I'm here to tell you it would have nothing to do with their abortion jurisprudence and overall conservatism. As I say, it's about standing and administrative law. But, you know, if the headline is the other way, is that actually a boost for Trump? You know, I like that Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, I hated that they took abortion away. But on this one, they're not so bad. They're yeah. not so bad after all. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's my question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Okay. The issue is reproductive rights, not not whether or not the courts rode back a little. Yeah. And Democrats are still pushing to get abortion rights ballot initiatives all over the country to great success. Plus, I mean, they could be like, okay, well, they made the right decision now. What if they take it up again in a few months or six months or when Trump's back in office? So, yeah, I don't think it's going away. All right. Three votes for that conclusion. Okay, we are about out of time, save for our much-loved final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener or a fictional listener <laughs> or from Mitch McConnell. Today's is from a Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. My question is... 50 years from now, you look up Rudy Giuliani's name in a U.S. history book. What does it say? What will Rudy Giuliani's epitaph B, five words or fewer guests, please. Down, 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 down. <laughs> America's mayor, no more. Always a disgraceful demagogue. Always. <laughs> you are so kind. <laughs> and with a little valedictory flourish, how the mighty have fallen. And we are out of time. Thank you so much, Al Franken, Alexi McCammon, and Bob Shrum. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes 
talking books and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message for a chance to be featured on the show or to give suggestions for our sidebar feature. That's 727-279-5339. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.